Hey everyone, my name is Nick Wignall, and you're listening to the Minds and Mics podcast. On this show, I talk with experts in the fields of psychology, behavioral science, and human potential, and try to see the world through their eyes. How do they think differently about topics as diverse as addiction and mindfulness to parenting and motivation? What do they know that most of us don't? And what can we learn from them to improve our own lives in practical, meaningful ways? A regular meditation practice is probably the single best thing I do personally for my own emotional health. Easily in the top three, right up there with regular exercise and high quality socializing. In fact, I frequently tell my therapy clients that they would likely get more out of a daily meditation practice than they would weekly psychotherapy with me in terms of their mental health and overall well-being. And yet, very few people actually establish, much less maintain, their own meditation practice. Today's guest is Lodro Rinsler. He's a meditation teacher with over 20 years of teaching experience, an author of, among many other books, Sit Like a Buddha, A Pocket Guide to Meditation, which is far and away my favorite book on the topic and the one I frequently give away and recommend to anyone trying to get a meditation practice started. If you've been interested in mindfulness and meditation but haven't quite got yourself to start or turned it into a habit yet, I think you'll really enjoy today's conversation. Lodro Rinsler, welcome to the show. Hey, thank you for having me. So we're going to talk mostly about meditation today, uh, but before we dive into that, I've just got to ask you a question about writing. Um, so I've d- in the very little uh, research that I've done, in the span of about five years, from 2012 to 2016, it looks like, you wrote six books, which is pretty <laughs> incredible. So I just, I got to ask you, like, what's your secret, man? Um, you know, my wife would call me a mutant. Um, she also wrote a book, her name's Adriana Limbach, and she wrote a book called Teen Cake with Demons. And it, she writes very openly about this in that book of how difficult a process it was. Mm. And uh, I had to say it was a real pain point in our relationship because I would be like, what, you can't just sit down and write? And she'd be like, F you. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I, really, I just, you know, meditation is something that I've done since I was a child. And it's, you might as well have me sit down and write about like X-Men comic books. You know, I've read them growing up and it's just part of how I think and what I do and meditation, of course, more so because it really soaks into the bones. So, you know, I've always found it easy to talk about meditation um, in a way that hopefully is accessible to other people. I don't think there's any tip of the trade. I wish that I could just be like, well, here's my pattern and it works for everyone, but that's not it. I think we all have our own weird ways of relating to um, the writing process and Mine mercifully just happens to be uh, a little bit more fluid, you know, a little bit of morning coffee, a little bit of meditation, and there I am. <laughs> That's so funny because I, you know, I really relate to that. Someone asked me, I, I, I haven't written any books really, but I, I write a lot of articles and someone asked me like how I, how I write so much. And I tell them that it doesn't, because I'm writing about something that I, I write about kind of mental health and psychology and um, anxiety a lot. And, and these are things that in my work as a therapist, I talk about constantly throughout the day. So when I write, it just feels like I'm talking, um, which does not feel hard at all to me. So it doesn't even feel like writing. And it kind of, and that interesting, like like a lot of your books feel like that. It just feels like a conversation. It doesn't feel like I'm reading a book necessarily. Thank Um, you. That's very kind. Yeah. And that's, that's intentional. It's, I'm not this, you know, learned monastic on the top of the mountain. I'm with you in the trenches of trying to make meditation applicable to everyday life. And I think it's exactly that's in some way what we're doing right here, which is having a conversation and hopefully this can help other people. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So speaking of books early on in your book, uh, sit like a Buddha, you, you talk about how, um, 
developing a consistent meditation practice um, has really, over the years, has really changed you um, in some pretty miraculous ways, as you describe it. So uh, my first question for you is, what are some of your favorite ways that a regular meditation practice has changed you? It doesn't have to be necessarily the really big miraculous ones, but what are some sort of interesting um, or just your favorite ways that that this practice has, has affected you? Yeah, it's, it's funny. It's, it's, um, you know, one of these things that if you ask me this now versus six months ago or six months, you know, in the future, I imagine I'll have different answers for you. So, you know, I have these classic examples around, um, you know, there's times where I've just been able to really be present for tough situations and not lose myself, you know, and my go-to example is about seven years ago, my father passed away and Mm. he was, he died in his home mercifully. And, uh, I was there with one other person, and I, in that moment, I wasn't thinking, "Oh my gosh, how do I fix this? How do we keep him?" I'd, I was just able to be there for that experience. And you know, I, I've talked to a lot of people. My last book was called "Love Hurts," which is Bruce's advice for the heartbroken. It's not just a book on relationships; it's all sorts of heartbreak. And I get emails from all sorts of people who, you know, have gone through this experience of losing a loved one, and just saying, you know, it's so amazing if we can actually be present for that. Like what a gift to be present in that moment and that we have that as part of our experience instead of spacing out or trying to escape that moment. So that's a big one for me. And that's put in multiple other ways. But the answer today, uh, since you asked today, is, you know, I find myself just being less reactive than I used to be, which is really helpful. You get sort of an email from someone and they're like, you are like this. Or, you know, you get, you know, here's something that's going wrong at work or whatever your version of it may be. And in that moment you say, okay, okay. Let me take a beat. Let me take, you know, the same gap that we're actually cultivating in meditation where just it starts to show up in our post-meditation experience. Yeah, that's great. Um, so also in, in your book, at the beginning of the book, in the first step is a kind of understanding your why, like knowing your why for starting a meditation practice. And, and I think people kind of intuitively get that it's important to have a, a good reason for starting something significant like a meditation practice. But in, in my experience, the trick is that a lot of us don't necessarily have a very clarified version of our why, and, and we're not very specific about it. And the, the part in that chapter that I, that I really loved and, and, and wished you had done a whole other chapter on, because it's such a fascinating idea, is the difference between what you call conscious and unconscious intention and why that distinction is so important. Can you talk about that a little bit and why you think that's so important for, for this kind of really getting in touch with your, your why, the, like, the big motivation behind starting a meditation practice? Sure. I'm, I'm happy to. Yeah. I mean, we always have a why. That's sort of the interesting thing here that we, you know, when we wake up in the morning and the mind goes off to the races and say, okay, what do I need to get done? Blah, 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 blah. There's The why is like, how quickly can I get to a point that I'm able to relax at the end of the day, right? Like that, maybe that's the goal in mind. Um, so we always have a why. If we, you know, have a hard day at work and we grab, you know, a drink with a friend after, what's going on there? What's the why? Is the why that we want to connect with them more wholeheartedly and hear how they're doing and be present with them? Is the why that we want to drown our sorrows because work isn't going so well? That's really the what knowing our why is going to affect. If we go in with an unconscious intention, you know, we're just trying to escape the pain of work. All of a sudden, we're finding that we're doing shots back to back to back, and we don't even remember talking to our friend. <laughs> uh, we wake up feeling really not good about ourselves, physically, mentally, emotionally. So knowing our why can be really helpful in making sure that we create less harm for ourselves and for others. 
So finding that point of, oh, you know, I mean, that's a good example. Of, you know, why am I here? Oh, I want to be with my friend. It means that we probably slow down. We don't drink so much. We just really enjoy their company. The focus of our attention isn't on forgetting work. It's on being present to our friend. Um, and same thing with meditation. You know, knowing why we want to meditate is so important because it's not the easiest thing. It's not the, unless you're like, you know, really jazzed about your trip to Spain and you want to learn as much Spanish as possible right before you go or something. Like it's very hard to motivate ourselves to learn new habits. Yeah. Um, so something like meditation, which is unfortunately a little bit slow going, you know, that's the bad news, but is the positive news is that's life transforming. Um with something like that, it's like, okay, I need to know my why because there's going to be days I don't want to meditate. There's going to be days I just want to you know, sleep in instead of getting up and going to my meditation seat. There's going to be days that I just you know, feel like I'm too busy to do it and I convince myself that everything gets to take priority over it. So there's different, you know, I think this is an interesting thing that we just don't necessarily uh, find it a fluid process unless we know why we're doing it to begin with. And for everyone, it's different. It could be, I want to feel less stressed out great reason it could be i need to handle my anxiety better great reason maybe i want to be more present for my family during this time great mm -hmm. there's also it's, it's important that's personal to you and once you know why i want to do it it's going to make the whole process much easier you know i, I think another reason I, I mean speaking personal experience but also like with a lot of my clients when we talk about starting a meditation practice i think one, one of the reasons it's so hard to stick with it is that it seems to me like there's just a lot of confusion about what meditation is exactly and, and maybe more importantly what it isn't um which is understandable because you know mindfulness and meditation have been sort of having a moment over the last kind of 10 years and you, you see stuff about meditation plastered all over magazines and the supermarket and stuff like that so it's not surprising maybe that our a lot of people's understanding of it is a little um uh impoverished maybe <laughs> um but my very favorite definition of meditation comes from you and, and from your book and it was really instrumental in getting my consistent practice off the ground. And it it all starts with this this really cool um, word or concept that you you introduce people to in the book called gom. I, I don't know if that's how you pronounce it exactly. It's a Tibetan word, right? Yeah. Can you tell us? Can you tell us about that word and why it's so central to how you think about meditation and what it really is? Yeah. So we're dealing with my favorite Tibetan word, <laughs> Chiyoan. Yeah, and you, you pronounced it absolutely correct. Um, it can be translated as meditation, but it can also be translated as become familiar with our familiarity. And that, I, I totally agree with you. It's my favorite definition as well, because we think mindfulness. Oh, I get to be present. I get to be you know aware, these sorts of things. Sure, I get that. But what if we thought of meditation more as a process of just getting to know ourselves better? to become familiar with who we really are. And it's funny, you know, I run an online meditation community uh, through my own website and people, uh, we do a series of teachings where people get videos every other week and we meet up and we talk about the teachings. Right now we're in a series known as Genuine Being. And Genuine Being is actually just us getting out of our own way long enough to become familiar with all of who we are, the good, bad, and ugly of it all. And when we find that we can drop some of the stories that hold us in stress and anxiety, and come into the present moment that we realize that we're genuinely okay in that moment. We're okay. Like anyone who's done meditation, you had a glimpse, three seconds, five seconds, of just resting. That's the moment that you're like, oh, in this moment, I'm okay. I can be who I am fully. I can embody who I am. And who I am is not so bad. So the process of become familiar with ourselves, it's like it's the stepping stone into that sense of wholeness and completeness 
feeling that we all want to possess. You know, in some traditions, we would call it basic goodness, inherent or innate goodness. And this isn't like a Star Wars good versus bad thing. It's like <laughs> a sense of wholeness and completeness, a sense of being okay with ourselves as we are, which is so important and yet not something we often soak in. So, you know, this is, um, you know, we start in the same way that if we made a new friend and we wouldn't immediately say, hey, new friend, do whatever I want you to do and don't do anything other than that. We'd say, who are you? Let me get to know you better. Let me become familiar with you. And the more time we spend with that friend, the more we enjoy their company, the more we actually even grow to love that friend. And the same thing can be said here. It's just us with our own minds. Our minds are not something to be whipped into shape. Our minds are not something that we need to chastise. It's like we just become familiar with what's going on with us. And the more we do that, the more we befriend ourselves and the more we actually grow to love ourselves. That's Yeah, it's so great. I, I have really shifted in the way I talk about um, meditation, especially when I'm introducing it to my clients as, as a potentially helpful practice from, I used to be all about sort of the, the exercise analogies, um, which I, th I think are, are valid in a lot of ways. It's, you know, building muscle and, and getting stronger and stuff like that. But, but lately I've, I've shifted more towards this idea of friendship is like a better analogy and that using that idea of like, everybody knows that, or most people know, I think how good it feels when you're, when you're just in the presence of a really good friend and how, how like, carefree you feel like to just be yourself you don't have to like hide anything or, or censor yourself at all you can just like you said good bad or ugly you can just lay it all out there and and that feeling that is like for me that's the the holy grail of meditation is like you get to be able to do that for yourself like you learn how to do that for yourself to be friend it sounds corny but to be friends with yourself um it doesn't sound corny it's it's better than anything i probably wrote in that book um it's exactly that it is exactly that well, that, I mean, that, that's, that's what, uh, why I fell head over heels about your book is that you, you literally write meditation is essentially a process of becoming friends with yourself. And I, I, I just think that's so, I think that's so important. And it's, it, I think it's so important for helping people kind of come into meditation. Um, cause there's a lot of, and this will kind of transition us, but there's a lot of resistance. I think people feel to getting into meditation. Um, and that, that's maybe the next kind of question I, I want to chat a little bit about, which is that, you know, I, I think uh, uh, one of the big pieces of resistance, at least in my own experience, um, working with people is judgmentalness, like people's own judgmentalness. Like when I, I work with people on starting a meditation practice and they, they often come back with just a lot of shame and guilt about how they couldn't do it and they were distracted all the time. And they're probably just cut, not cut out to be a, a meditator. And, and you have this great little section in your book, and I'm going to shut up in a second and let you talk, but I have to quote you on this because I just love this passage, which is, you're, you're wonderfully direct. You say, don't ever judge your meditation practice. Your mind is your mind. Sometimes it will be easy to stay with your breath, and you'll think you're an inch away from enlightenment. The next day, someone at work pisses you off, and that's all you can think about when you sit down and meditate. We should never label our practice sessions are good or bad. Anytime you get to the meditation seat is a good meditation. So riffing on that, let me just ask you here, why do you think people are so hard on themselves and judgmental about their meditation? Like, what's the deal with that? It's a great question. I mean, I think, you know, as I mentioned earlier, I'm meditating since I was a kid. I was about six years old when I started. I'm, am I 38 now? I think I am. Yes. Um, <laughs> and, you know, that also means I've been teaching it actually starting this month. It'll be 20 years. Um, and 
throughout this whole process, I've seen so many people who think it should be easy. Like they sit down and, you know, within a half hour you walk out and you should feel as relaxed as getting a massage. And it's a bit of a, a situation where we need to come into our, um, like a different education process around this thing. It's like, we're still learning what meditation is. People haven't explained it fully before. And part of being a meditator is it's like not so much a massage, but as we talked about earlier, it's like learning a language mm. or um, like actually coming into a sense of, uh, I think, you know, an earlier analogy that you were referring to is like maybe exercise or martial arts or learning a new musical instrument. And mm. if we thought we could pick up the guitar and immediately play Freebird, of course we would be frustrated that we can't. <laughs> but there's something baked in our culture. We're like, oh no, I have to take lessons. And it's going to take months. And at first it's going to sound weird to even pick up the guitar and hit a few, you know, hit a few chords. It's not going to sound right. If we could actually bring that education and apply it to meditation, that would be really helpful. It just hasn't happened in our culture yet because there's a lot of misconceptions. So I think, you know, one of, if, if anyone takes something away from our conversation, I hope they learn that they can just be open to their meditation practice without judging themselves, without perpetuating it as like another way to, to move forward with self-aggression. But to actually allow every time we drift off in meditation to be the reason that we can treat ourselves with kindness. And I'll just say one more thing about this, which is if we had one thought in our meditation practice and that was it, then yeah, I'll use an exercise analogy because you're referring to them. I think they're actually helpful. It'd be like going to the gym and lifting a 20-pound weight once. <laughs> right. You know, it's not going to do much. But if we drift off 20, 30 times, it's like lifting that weight 20 or 30 times. All of a sudden, it doesn't always feel comfortable, but that's, that's where the muscle gets stronger because it's the repetition of it all. And that's exactly it with meditation. The more, in fact, if you feel like I have so many thoughts, I have more thoughts than anyone I can never meditate. What amazing, you're going to progress so quickly if you keep catching those thoughts and come back. Because that's exactly how we actually retrain and rewire the brain. From a neurological perspective, all, there's so much research these days that say if we actually do this practice in a very series of as little as eight weeks, lo and behold, we actually start to see increased, <clears throat> increased gray matter in the hippocampus, more activity in the ACC, which means or non-neuroscientists like myself, <laughs> that we actually are more present, that we actually are held less by stress. Instead, you know, it boosts our immune system, it normalizes our sleep patterns, it makes us more creative. I mean, I feel like we're a minute away from BuzzFeed releasing the 20 sexiest reasons we should be meditating. <laughs> you know, but this is, it's, it's all very true. But I think it all relates back to stress reduction. And, um, you know, I was telling you right before we went live that, you know, I've been working on this new book called Take Back Your Mind which is, you know, Buddhist advice for an anxious world, because I think we're just living in a, a time that anxiety and stress is just predominant. And um, this is the practice. It's like, okay, we can acknowledge the stressors that come up in our life, but we don't have to get held there. And if I turned to you and I said, you know, uh, here's a choice. You can relax and be present and content, or you can be stressed. What would you choose? <laughs> obviously content. <laughs> right. So in that moment, you just made a choice and you said, okay, I'm choosing contentment. I'm choosing being present and relaxed. And that's just the same choice we make over and over again in the meditation practice. Do we want to be held and chase after those stressful thoughts? Or do we want to make a different choice and just acknowledge them and come back? And it's, it's, I know it seems simplistic, but it really is. It's a simple practice. It's just not easy. 
yeah, can you, this is probably a good time to dive into, um, I love how you talk about kind of the, the two like active ingredients or like the two fundamental moves in meditation are mindfulness and awareness. Um, can you, can you kind of break those down real quick and, and explain what those are in the context of like a simple sort of breathing meditation? So I'll try and be straightforward and not involve too many foreign terms. Uh, yeah. So mindfulness is the mind's natural ability to know what's going on, to just relax and be present. That's, that's mindfulness. And then we have this other thing, awareness, which actually is an, a larger understanding of the environment that we're in. So for example, since you mentioned meditation practice itself, we could be mindful of the body breathing. The primary point of our focus is just being with the body breathing. But then we have this awareness aspect that also knows that there is sounds in the street and that your you know, spouse or roommate or friend is in the other room and that the cat is you know, meowing because they, they want to be fed. There's other things happening. And we don't. it's not like we just block that out. We balance this all the time, mindfulness and awareness. So we're present and we're aware of what's going on. So, you know, when you are um, waiting in line for a bagel and you're sort of spacing out and then someone says next and you say, oh my gosh, it's me. You're just there. In that moment, you're completely there, right? You, you right. give the bagel order and you ideally are present with the other person and you enjoy their company and you hand them your card or whatever. And then you step back and there's an awareness of what's happening around you right okay so there's other people coming up you're waiting for the bagel you know there's something the street. there's just an awareness of what's happening and then there's the sense of someone says your name and you say oh that's me and you're just there and present again so we're always balancing mindfulness and awareness it's just mm -hmm. always happening they're innate to who we are but we can apply them in meditation to keep our mind more grounded yeah, and I think that's a common misconception is that mindfulness is, or, or a mindfulness meditation is all about being focused. Um, and so we see distraction as like antithetical to that, like we're, we're, we're losing somehow, we did it wrong. But, re but really, as you kind of explain, it's about when you get distracted, that's just an opportunity to, to flex that awareness muscle and to realize, oh, hey, like I got distracted. And what I really want to be doing now is focusing on my breath. So I'm going to kind of move back to that. And that's your, you're missing 50% of the, <laughs> at least, um, of the practice. If you're, if you just sort of think of that as something bad or a mistake, right? Yes. Um, so let's, I, I want to transition. Um, so I, I'm a therapist. Um, I work with a lot of people with, with emotional struggles. And so I'm always kind of thinking about when it comes to meditation, like how sort of emotion, um, plays into meditation and, and, I want to, you have, you have a chapter in the book on um, meditation and emotions, and I'm tempted to just read the entire chapter <laughs> because it's so good. Uh, but in the interest of time, I'm just going to ask you this. Why do you think meditation is such a good practice for learning how to work with difficult emotions in a healthy way? Yeah, it's, it's a great question. It's something that I've been focusing a lot of attention on recently, not surprisingly, in the midst of a global pandemic, uncertain economy, politically divisive you know, moment people are struggling with a lot of strong emotions. Yeah. And I think the idea that we could not tamp down the emotions or ignore them, not run away and distract ourselves with Netflix or a drink, or not feel like we always have to act out on everything that comes up and you know, potentially cause harm to ourselves or others, but to actually learn to be with them. To, again, to go back to our favorite phrase of gom, to befriend, to learn, become familiar with them. That's so important. So there's something here in this moment where if could we use our emotions not as 
something we need to struggle against, but something that is actually part of our spiritual practice. And, um, you know, people may not necessarily think of them as, as spiritual, but the idea here is that we could just be with whatever emerges. And I mentioned the term good, bad, and ugly before. <laughs> it's exactly that. It's just the sense of like, hey, you know, there are times when we feel joy. Can we just actually rest and feel joy? If we are content sipping our morning coffee, can we get out of our own way long enough to just feel that sense of contentment? Not spin out the stories about what might happen later in the day. And then when we feel anger, can we allow ourselves to feel anger without necessarily feeling like we have to do something about anger? Can we have to tell that person off? Can we just feel it in the body? There's so many practices around meditations uh, on emotions. So there's, you know, just being with the present, the experience of the emotion itself, just actually allowing ourselves to have time, space, and permission to feel what we feel. Similar to when we do mindfulness of the breath practice, it's actually helpful to um, say to ourselves when we drift off into stories and try and keep the emotion going, to just say, it's okay to feel this. And then we come back to feeling the energy of the emotion itself. There's a great practice that was developed by the Buddhist teacher, Michelle McDonald, that's known as RAIN, which is a four-step process of recognizing emotions as they come up, allowing and accepting them in the moment, investigating them, becoming inquisitive about them long enough that we might be able to move to a point of non-attachment or non-identification. Some other teachers even call this nurture, this end step, um, that we would nurture ourselves as we <coughs> work with the strong emotions that come up. So in all of this, you know, that practice, another practice, there's other practices where we can notice the emotion and say to ourselves, I'm feeling stress, for example, and we had this magic word, and. It's nice and warm in this room. I'm feeling fear, and I have the love of so many wonderful humans. There's something of like, lift in all of these practices, lifting the blinders so that we're not so narrowly focusing on just the emotion, but allowing it to move through it, through us, and actually to face it in a way that feels substantive, authentic, and not overwhelming. Yeah, you know, it's this is interesting because it makes me think about, in my own work um, as a therapist, uh, one of the biggest patterns I notice in people who are suffering emotionally on, on a kind of chronic basis is that they have a what I would call a pretty poor relationship with their own minds. And that is they're, they're always or often kind of trying to either run away from or sort of get rid of difficult thoughts or emotions. And so it's, it's constantly kind of combative. It's like they're in a war zone all the time, either retreating or attacking. Um, on the other hand, one of the things you notice with people who are, are pretty emotionally um, peaceful and resilient, and of course, we all have our moments, right? <laughs> but in general, they, these people tend to have a very friendly relationship with, with even uncomfortable thoughts and emotions. And so I, I have found meditation is just such a good way to, to practice in, in a very concrete way, um, a different building, a different kind of relationship with difficult emotions and feelings, like you're describing, just be being able to be with them, observe them, kind of be inquisitive about them without necessarily doing something, running away or fixing or whatever it is. Um, so let, you mentioned your, your, your new book on, on anxiety. Um, how, how do you, how do you find meditation being especially helpful for, for anxiety in particular? Um, like what, or, or maybe another way of asking this question is sort of what prompted you to tackle this particular topic? Yeah. Um, 
maybe I'll try and answer both. I think, you know, that the basic practice that, you know, you, you were mentioning the book, Sit Like a Buddha, which is just a, my small primer on how do you get going with meditation practice? How do you just do a mindfulness practice to, in such a way that it will actually transform your life and your mind? And a big part of this is just acknowledging the thoughts that keep us held in pain. There's an old Buddhist analogy. It's actually, I mentioned this in the new book as well, um, that we're walking through a forest and out of nowhere, an arrow comes and shoot, it hits us in the, in the arm. And the proper thing to do would be to pull the arrow out and tend to our own healing. But most of us spend our time thinking, oh my gosh, who shot me? What did I do that deserve? It's probably that thing from the third grade. I bet it was Chuck that shot me. I'm going to tell everyone what a jerk Chuck is. And we just continue to spin out and perpetuate our own mental pain. And this is known as the second arrow. Mm. So there's the pain that occurs as part of life. Unfortunately, that's just something that happens. And then there's the ways that we lock ourselves in that pain instead of tending to healing it. So that's the nature of our way that we work with stress and anxiety. And I, I think, David, to answer the second part of your question, you know, I'm starting to see, particularly in loved ones who, you know, I always considered to be very resilient, that they were, you know, they would shut down at certain points in conversations and things like that. I'll say, oh, well, what's going on? And they'll say, well, you know, your friend brought up politics. And I got to say, with the political cycle right now, I can't handle it. I'm just, I just, I watch a half hour of animal videos every day just to come back to what's <laughs> normal, you know, and that's like a conscious practice that this person, yeah. and you know, it's like, wow, you know, I don't, I, I realized, I began to explore and realize what an epidemic that anxiety and stress has become that I don't know someone who doesn't work with stress and anxiety on a daily basis. Mm. And yet none of us talk about it. It's like this monkey on our back that no one's actually addressing as an actual issue. That we can work with we just sort of accept it we have all sorts of memes and jokes and things that are like yeah this is just who we are we're stressed out balls of you know anxiety that never have a chance to be anything other than that and the fact of the matter is that's not true so that's sort of the birth of this book just the sheer like seeing the need of people saying like i don't know how to work with my mind as yeah. we were saying earlier i don't know how to do it so that i can actually live an anxious free life or at least with less anxiety so this is the notion of the second arrow in meditation that like, okay, you get that angry email from your boss and then you sit down with your mind either formally in meditation or you're just, you know, riding the subway to work or whatever. Do you hold yourself there or have you trained the mind to acknowledge, okay, this happened and I can turn my mind to other things that are happening right now. I don't have to lock myself in that pain. I don't have to perpetuate a second arrow. I can acknowledge, I can tend to the healing with my relationship with my boss or the work project that fell through or whatever it is without causing myself undue pain. There's no one that keeps us locked in afflictive emotions than us. No one holds our feet to the fire and says, you have to continue to feel upset about this. You have to continue to feel angry. We are the only person who does that to ourselves. So that's the thing that we can actually work with our own mind and not do that so much. Yeah. I love that, that, analogy of the second arrow. I've never heard that before, but it, it resonates so much with, with what I see in my own work, which is that no matter what someone kind of ostensibly walks through my door into my office to work on, whether it's depression or anxiety or anger or whatnot, it, it almost inevitably, it comes down to this problem of what I think of as sort of stacking emotions, which is it, it's rarely the problem that people are anxious. It's really that they're anxious about being anxious or they're angry about being anxious. 
It's, it's not the problem isn't sadness. It's it's being critical of yourself for feeling sad. So now you're feeling shame on top of sadness. Yes. And there's something those yeah, those that's exactly are, it. There's just the sense of like, oh, I shouldn't be feeling this. And that's that's one of the things. It's like once we start using should and shouldn't in our meditation practice, we're already starting to doom ourselves. It's like I should already feel peaceful by now. I shouldn't still be held by these strong emotions. We are who we are, and we sort of start where we are and move from there. Yeah. So w- one of the big benefits I've experienced and I experience with my clients with with meditation is it, it really helps us avoid that second arrow problem where we we're inevitably going to feel anxious, angry, sad, whatever it is sometimes. But the ability to not get kind of critical or judgmental about ourselves for feeling bad, to not feel ashamed about ourselves for feeling angry or anxious is just so key. Like, do you find that in your, in your work? Yeah. I mean, that's exactly it. Often within meditation, we have a situation where we start saying, I should feel peaceful all the time or I shouldn't be so held by my anger, or I shouldn't have reacted in that way, or whatever. And I, I think, you know, one of the people I admire in the meditation world, her name is Pema Chodron. She's been, you know, a monastic in the Tibetan Buddhist tradition for decades and decades and decades. And, you know, one of her early books was called Start Where You Are. And I think it's actually just the best meditation advice that anyone could ever receive, which is we start where we are. And there's no should or shouldn't in meditation. It's no like, oh, I shouldn't have done that. It's like, okay, this is what's going on with me. And I, from this moment forward, I can work with my mind in a different way. And that's the liberating quality. Hmm. Yeah, I love that your, your final chapter in, in Sit Like a Buddha is titled Relax. Uh, and you've got this great line where you say, um, if you got into meditation to learn to relax, then make sure you're not using it as another thing to get wound up about. <laughs> Um, So listen, we're going to kind of wrap up here. Um, Any final words of encouragement um, or advice for folks out there who are listening to this and maybe they've been thinking about meditation for a while and getting a practice started and they're kind of thinking, okay, this is it. I'm really, I want to do it. Um, I want to give it a shot. Any, any kind of final uh, words of encouragement or advice? Yeah. I mean, man, we could do another hour on this (laughs) one, but um, I think to find qualified teachers and to study with them is really important these days. I realize that these, you know, there's so many resources of apps, and YouTube and things like that, but we could overwhelm ourselves without someone who's going to talk to us and say, okay, what are you trying to get out of your practice here? And once they know that they can actually advise us appropriately. Um, so someone who, you know, has access to a tradition and has actually been trained to teach it and things like that, it's really helpful. If we don't have access to that, I think, you know, picking up books are really good and um, books on, that appeal to us on our meditation practice. But in terms of launching a practice, one of the things I mentioned in that book, Sit Like a Buddha, is me saying consistency four times in a row, but I'll, I'll try and make it sound more interesting than that. Uh, the first is actually allowing yourself to have a consistent amount of time that you're doing the practice, which could be 10 minutes a day to start, and setting a timer so that we're not looking at our watch every minute and saying, oh, is it over, is it over, is it over? The second I'll mention is a consistent time of day. And this is one of those really sticky things that if we don't have a consistent time of day, we'll keep saying, oh, I'll do it later. And then we never get around to it. Hmm. So to say, okay, I wake up in the morning, I have my morning coffee, I shower, I get dressed, I meditate. It just becomes part of the routine. Then it's actually going to really stick. Particularly if it's like 10 minutes and you know, somewhere in there, you probably would have brushed your teeth. I don't think to mention that because it's just naturally part of the routine. 
if we can make it like that, if it's our getting up in the morning routine, great. If it's our coming home from work routine, great. If it's our going to bed routine, that's also wonderful. Whatever it might be for you, finding that consistent time of day, is the, it's the best time of day to do it. There's no preferred time. It's just the time that you can consistently do it. That's the best time to do it. And then a uh, consistent environment is really helpful. And we don't have to build out you know, our own wing of a house to meditate, but to have a consistent maybe cushion or chair that you sit in. If it's helpful, you could have a candle or an incense burner or a statue or an image of someone you admire, something that magnetizes you to the space and makes it feel like that's a warm, inviting space that I can sit in. If we're going to take 10 minutes just to set up our meditation space and we only had 10 minutes to begin with, we're not going to do it. But if it's waiting for us, then it's actually much more easy for us to just plop down and say, okay, now I'm meditating. And the last thing, you know, consistent amount of time, time of day, environment, the last thing I'll mention is pacing. So consistent pacing of it all. It's like if we picked up a guitar once a week and played it, we might still be remembering where to place our fingers and how to play those chords. But if we are able to do a little bit of guitar practice every single day, before we know it, we will be playing Freebird. It's just, we don't even know how we got there. It's just naturally starts to happen because we're putting time and space into it. So 10 minutes a day, even if we do it for say 11 days in a row, some of the science around habit formation says that we actually start to notice that this becomes habit forming in the brain. After 21 days, supposedly it's a fully formed habit. Skipping it would feel as weird as skipping brushing your teeth. So I think, you know, to consider like this as a, a long game, not like a, a short, like, oh, I did it three times and I'm, I'm bad at it, so I can't do it anymore, but to say, okay, I'm going to do it for 10 minutes a day, 21 days in a row. And if you still don't feel like you're doing it, um, I, I just honestly, I, I'm not going to say that. It's like, I've never met someone who actually gets meditation instruction, does it consistently for 21 days and says, this is useless. I've never met right, that person. Right. Uh, I realize it's subjective and as a meditation teacher, I have to say that, but like, I'm, it's absolutely my truth. I, I've never experienced that. So I think it's that pacing quality that really people sometimes get stuck on, but even just say, okay, 21 days in a row, 10 minutes a day, same time of day, same place. I'm doing it. I, I imagine you'll see the transformation for yourself. Yeah. You know, the converse of that too is I don't know that I've ever heard an experienced meditator talk about a history where they just decided to start meditating and then did it perfectly right off the bat. Like everybody has like this fitful kind of awkward jerking kind of start to it, uh, which is totally normal. I think that's so important to, to know, right? That that's, that's just the way it goes. That's exactly it. I, I, that's extremely well put. And I think that's, we're not going to be, we shouldn't aim to be the perfect meditator. In fact, meditation is just aiming us to be a fuller, more perfect version of ourselves. Yeah. And that's, that's, I have this quote from you written down, which is, that really resonates with that idea, which is just that meditation is just a tool to let you be you, to bring a sense that you are actually good enough, worthy enough, and kind, strong, and smart enough to handle whatever arises. Um, and I think that that sentiment um, just really uh, comes across when people, uh, certainly when I hear you talk about meditation, it's so straightforward and friendly. Um, and I think that's what people need. Um, in my experience when it comes to meditation. So Lodro, thank you so much for coming on. This has been wonderful. Um, are there, is there a good place people can go if they want to learn more about you and your work? Sure. I suppose the nice thing of having a name like Lodro Rensler is that you get to own all the domains and right. <laughs> I'm, you know, I'm on social media like Facebook and Twitter and, and Instagram and all at Lodro Rensler. And then it's lodrorensler.com. So it's L-O-D-R-O-R-I-N-Z-L-E-R.com. And 
I mean, I realize that there are all sorts of people who have on the uh, this on the show, but you know, I I really do respond to everyone personally. And there's no team behind loadrivenslow.com. It's like if you write to me through that, I will respond to you personally. So I'm always happy to be in correspondence with people who've connected to my work. Yeah, I can vouch for that. He emailed me back right away after after email. <laughs> Hey everyone, thanks so much for listening to this episode of Minds and Mics. If you haven't done so already, I'd appreciate it if you took one minute to give us a review on Apple Podcasts. It helps out a lot. And if you've already done that, please consider sharing Minds and Mics with a friend or family member you think would enjoy it. As always, thank you for continuing to support the show, and we'll see you next time.